<laughs> hey everybody, welcome to Cinemus, the podcast where we debate the must-see status of the films included in the book A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, and you decide if they should be included on the list of essential cinema. I'm your unfeeling despot, Mike Emmel, a little too pleased to be joined for tonight's episode by the man who sets all his enemies ablaze without prejudice or reason, David Sandu. David, welcome back. Ah, that's a terrible <laughs> right? <laughs> cut that. You need to cut that. <laughs> nope, that is, in there. that is in there forever. My one question is that, is that Vincent Price or is that Skip Martin? Oh, man. I was practicing a laugh, like, earlier today. I'm like, I think I got this laugh down with Vincent Price, but... That did not turn out well. The pressure of um, being on air, man. Yeah, like a frog in my throat. I am doing great. I am so excited to talk about Vincent Price today. It's going to be a fantastic time and great to have you back uh, for a horror movie during October, as is the tradition. This is going to be a really fun show, man. So welcome back and welcome to all of you who are listening. We are really glad to have you guys here because this episode marks the beginning of a brand new chapter for the podcast. Starting today, our show will be released every single week covering a single film each episode rather than a double feature. So the reason for the change is that we'd been wondering for a while if the length of our shows and the bi-monthly release schedule was off-putting to some listeners and maybe even preventing some potential new listeners from finding us or giving us a chance. So we finally put the question out to all of you through our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages, and pretty resoundingly, the majority of you said, one movie every week sounded like a better format. So we're really excited to move forward with it, as always, with your support and interaction. And although a few things are changing, we will still be relying upon all of you listening to make the final decision regarding the must-see status of the film we're discussing tonight. Another change you should be aware of, the poll to cast your vote on the movie's must-see status will no longer be held on our website, which will be closing very shortly. So instead, what you'll want to do is follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, whichever one you prefer, maybe all three. To find us on any of them, you just have to search for Cinemust. Those social media platforms are where we are going to be releasing the polls for all of you to, de to decide which of our three categories tonight's movie belongs in. So while all of you make sure you're following us on the social media platform of your choosing, David, if I could trouble you to take off the ape outfit for just a minute, will you please remind us what those three categories are? Yes, yeah, so first off, we have Cinemust, title of the podcast. These are the movies that everybody needs to see. These are essential viewings for life without these movies. Your life will never be fulfilled. Cinetrust is a movie that was pretty good. It's fine. You can take it or leave it. It's not a bad movie. It's just you don't have to see it for the grand meditations of life. And Cinebust are those movies that are you would not recommend to anybody. It's not necessarily that they're bad movies. It's just that who's the audience for these movies? You're not entirely sure, and you're not sure that it would add any quality of life to anybody if they saw these movies. It's a sad, sad, meaningless existence for the Cinebus. Fortunately, there are so few of them on our show. Uh, thank you, man. So, so we can cut right to the chase tonight, talking about a single movie. We have teased it, starring one Vincent Price. David, can you tell the folks at home what movie we're talking about tonight and why you chose it for this show? Yes, well, I chose it because it was really the only choice. I wanted to do a Vincent Price movie, and this is the only Vincent Price movie on the list, so I didn't have a choice. But The Mask of the Red Death is a 1964 Roger Corman and Vincent Price project where they were at the time doing a bunch of different Edgar Allan Poe stories. And this is a famous collaboration in movie history. And The Mask of the Red Death is an adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's story, although this is embellished a lot and actually incorporates some other Edgar Allan Poe stories as well. So the story is of a prince who is trying to hide from the mysterious Red Death that is killing people in the countryside. He takes a prisoner, he brings her to his house, and there ensues in debauchery and Satanism and gorilla suits, and <laughs> eventually the Red Death finds its way into the inner circle of the wealthy. And... Yeah, so this is an I, interesting... Yeah. I, I would ding you for giving away spoilers this early in the show, but I think that this story from Edgar Allan Poe is, uh, is so well-known that everybody's pretty... I think everybody knows that's where everything winds up. Uh, yes, I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, no, you're fine. I mean, there's certain movies that I just feel like the end is just given, such as, you know, The Passion of the Christ or Titanic or... <laughs> I mean, at some point, after a hundred or so years, spoiler alert is no longer needed. <laughs> That's, you're exactly right. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. Go on. That's it. 
Okay, so great plot summary, man. Thank you. And yeah, we're rolling right in. So we're, we're mostly spoiler-free right now. Sorry, we ruined that horrifying ending of Ed- Edgar Allan Poe's story, but uh, we won't go into specifics with the movie just yet. Before we can do that, David and I are going to vote The Mask of the Red Death as either a Cinemust, Cinetrust, or Cinebust. And each of us will give three reasons for why we voted the way we did. From there, we'll lay down a spoiler warning in case you guys are tantalized enough to want to go watch the movie before you carry on. Um, so bear with us for a couple minutes while we we lay out our theses here, and then uh, and then we'll lay down spoiler warnings. So David, I'll let you keep on going with this. Mask of the Red Death, you you said uh, you're you're a little disappointed. I'm gathering from your tone. The only Vincent Price and the only Roger Corman movie in a thousand and one movies you must see before you die. I don't, I know you're a Vincent Price fan. I don't know anything about your reaction to this movie. So I'm dying to know, man. How are you going to vote for it? So I'm going to say that this movie is a sin of trust. Okay. Uh, I enjoyed this movie. And I think that visually this was a very interesting movie. I think that Corman had an interesting vision going on here. And I find that a lot of it was really beautiful to look at. And this was one of the times that Corman was actually actually taking something seriously. And I would have liked to have seen more of that in Corman's work. Now, to be fair, I've not seen all of Corman's work because I don't think that he's even seen all his work. The guy has a <laughs> filmography larger than anybody else out there. But I'm going to vote it as a sin of trust. My reasons are because I don't think that this is the best of Vincent Price. I'm not sure that this is the best of Roger Corman, and although visually striking, it left me wanting more, but not in a good way. Okay, um, this will be this will be a ton of fun, man. Because yeah, this this whole thing kind of like you said, it, it's a stand-in for two guys' filmographies for this type of horror movie that was based off of Edgar Allan Poe, who's one of the ultimate horror writers. Like this one entry in a thousand and one movie seems to be representative of so many different artists and creators. So I'm going to be really interested as we dive into it to talk about some other things that it represents as well as what it maybe does and does not get right. So, you know, my vote is, but what's your vote? I'm actually going to go sit a must on mask of the red death. I, I really can see where you're coming from on a lot of your points. And I teetered on the edge of, uh, Cine trust, but uh, I got to watch the movie a second time. And when you do that, and you're looking for an excuse to give a movie a cinema must, you start to find a lot of good reasons to give it a cinema must. So reason number one for me, he's the guy that got us here in the first place, Vincent Price. He is one charming and malevolent sob. Um, I think this is one of his best performances. I think he's so much fun in the movie. Like he's easily a third of the reason everyone should see it. Uh, my second reason. It's a really deliciously lavish production that's a treat for the senses. Um, you'd, you'd mentioned this is a big shift in Corman's production style. He went to England for the first time as kind of this movie's big claim to fame, drawing in a lot of really talented people that we have even discussed in previous episodes of this podcast, like Nicholas Rogue. Um, so I think the movie is gorgeous to look at and super fun. And then my third reason I think everybody should see it, behind that B-movie veneer, there are surprisingly complex ideas about death and survival, belief, and even some class stuff. And that's not what you expect from this movie that was churned out in five weeks, comes from a long line of cheapy movies that are kind of overacted. I wouldn't say it's necessarily the best of both worlds. I think at points it could stand to be a little campier. And then there's other times where its seriousness makes it seem a lot more like just diet Ingmar Bergman, because I know the movie exists very much in the shadow of Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal. This movie was going to be released way earlier, but they held it off because it was too similar to The Seventh Seal. They needed a couple of years for people to put some distance between the two. Um, But I think it still holds up. Um, And I, like I said, that second viewing, all of a sudden I was like, these kind of ideas are in this weird, like, Vincent Price movie that's just supposed to be dumb fun. Um, so I really agree with you, David, that I think that this has been chosen for a thousand and one movies because it is a bit more serious, that its production value has gone up, that it just a little different approach for the Roger Corman school of filmmaking with you. I do think it's a shame that they only found room for one. The great news is, is that with our podcast and our list of essential cinema, this is the one that's nominated tonight. In the future, there's an innumerable amount of Vincent Price or Roger Corman movies that could go up for a spot on this same list. So this will be really fun, man. I don't know that I have anything else to say before we can really get into spoilers. Do you? I don't. Oh, wait. I do have I do have one last question. I'm so sorry. Cinetrust. It's, it's a movie you really like. You'd recommend it to a certain amount of people, but not everybody. 
what's the group of people that you absolutely would recommend The Mask of the Red Death to? I would recommend this movie to people who are already fans of Vincent Price and Roger Corman and that uh, classic Hammer era of horror movies. If I were going to show a Vincent Price movie to somebody, I don't know that I, this would be the first one that I want to show them. I don't think it's a good introduction to Vincent Price. I, I can actually uh, agree with that. That's pretty good. It's, it's probably not a great starter, but I do think it's uh, one of the very best. So cool. Thanks, man. Sorry, I forgot to ask you that with your vote. Um, but if there's nothing else we've got to say right now, we should just dive into the meat of this and start backing up all of our points. So so we're going to lay down a spoiler warning. If you haven't seen The Mask of the Red Death yet, don't want it ruined for you. Go ahead and pause the episode. Go check it out. It's a brisk 90 minutes. You'll be back in no time at all. Um, but let's get talking about it, David. My father imprisoned a friend of his in this room for three years. When he was released... He could never again bear to look at the sun, or even a daffodil. How cruel. Cruel? It was simply a test to prove how easily a man's mind can be controlled and twisted. My family have always been interested in such things. Somewhere in the human mind, my dear Francesca, is the key to our existence. My ancestors tried to find it to open the door that separates us from our creator. But you need no doors to find God. If you believe... Believe? If you believe, my dear Francesca, you are gullible. Can you look around this world and believe in the goodness of a God who rules it? Famine, pestilence, war, disease, and death. They rule this world. There is also love and life and hope. Very little hope, I assure you. No. If a god of love and life ever did exist, he is long since dead. Someone, something, rules in his place. So... What did you like the most about this movie? Boy, what don't I like the most about this movie? Uh, Vincent Price, obviously, he is the draw. He is what brought us here. He's easily a third of the reason. Um, I, I mentioned in general impressions, I don't know if this is my absolute favorite performance of his, but I think it's one of the best. I think that he has this, um, his character, Prince Pro Prospero, has this contempt for other people and this gleeful superiority that I think gives the film this kind of sense of delight that its subject matter is missing because it's a very serious movie like the the world outlook of this movie is super grim and nihilistic and, and like i said in a vincent price movie i think you expect it to be kind of hokey and overacted and kind of fun this honestly isn't that funny or fun of a movie and i think like all the joy you get from it is just how deliciously evil vincent price can be it, it's kind of sad because he's a horrible guy but at the same time i i love everything he does to mess with people he is evil and it is one of the things that's enjoyable to watch honestly i don't think that this movie would have worked at all with anybody else in that role no i couldn't no. see so if we were to take his contemporaries so if we were to take Peter Cushing or Christopher Lee or Boris Karloff or let's say for fun, Peter Lorre. <laughs> actually, I would love to see this movie with Peter Lorre. Um, that, that actually probably would make it real what, what interesting. Would you, you would but, like, Francesca, uh, you found my Satan chapel. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was the thing that was really missing from the new Aladdin movie. There wasn't enough Peter Lorre jokes like in the original. That's true, yeah. Um, <laughs> or Satanism. Or Satanism. Well, and... So on the one aspect, I really loved how how delicious he made all of his lines. Um, at the same time, this and this is why I don't think that this is one of his best. I think that Vincent Price works best when he's a sympathetic villain. Oh, and you don't feel he's sympathetic in this one? Because I actually think that's a big part of draw to his performance is that for for such a despicable guy, I think you can really see where he's coming from. Yeah, no, I don't see where he's coming from. <laughs> okay. I think that he's despicable through and through. He has a, a, a rich family history of torturers, and he's a Satanist by choice. 
when I find him sympathetic is when you're watching House of Wax or if you're watching um, Pit and the Pendulum or uh, the Castle movies or Theater of Blood or any, you know a lot of his movies he's this he's this bad guy he's this villain who got there to a place where you sympathize with him and I've always liked that Vincent Price. Uh, not to say that I, and, you know, Dr. Fives and all of those, like, not to say that I didn't like this performance. It is fun to see him just be all out, balls to the wall, evil. But uh, I think that those performances are more intriguing to me because I do think that in his campy way, he brings a nuance to those roles in a way that's a lot more enjoyable. So, yeah, no, I, but I do think that this is a wonderful performance. And I think that that. I think the highlight scene, I'm curious, what is the scene that stood out to you the most? Well, well, really quick, let me double back because I think maybe sympathetic is probably too strong a word for me. I think empathetic is better because, yeah, he, he at multiple points is, uh, is your stereotypical like B-movie bad guy, almost to the point he's like almost twirling his mustache. But these, these kind of um, proselytory talks he has with Francesca where he's he's laying out that he's not just like, he's not just imposing, you know, the harsh realities of the world and his, his satanic views on her for the sake of evil, that he, he kind of has like the concern that you would see like a Christian missionary have for, for a heathen, you know, that he says like, I'm not trying to corrupt you. I'm trying to educate you. Like, you know, he, he has that whole speech about like, Satan's not a God of hate. He's a God of reality. Like the reality of the world is that there's nothing but despair and and loneliness like there is no loving god and you know my the instruments of torture in my dungeon i didn't put those there the inquisition put those those were put there in the service of the so-called loving god and i'm not saying like i'm down i'm down for um satanism and his views but you know that that goes a sense deeper to go to my third point you know you think in a movie like this where it's like oh the bad guy's a satanist whatever Where's this coming from that all of a sudden he has like a good reason and that he's not just doing it to be evil, that he actually like wants people to see the reality of the world. But then he, he I, I will agree, he gets to have his cake and eat it too a lot because a huge motivation for the character for or for this iteration of Prince po Prospero is um, the the God that he truly worships is himself. And and sometimes I wonder if um, the whole addition of making him a Satanist isn't a bit superfluous because to me it's kind of more interesting if instead of Satan being the God that he worships, if the God that he worships all the time is just himself. And that would be a lot more in keeping with the Red Death's final line about how every man makes his own God and makes his own heaven and his own hell. Um, so I, I found all that stuff really interesting. You had asked what the standout scene for Vincent Price is for me. I think I'm over the moon about the dagger scene. I think it's supremely acted by him. He's really malevolent. He gets to play with these guys. I love he relishes the challenge of how he's going to make them kill one another, and he figures out he can do it, not by making them fight one another or kill one another, but by trying to make them save the other. But it's really well shot. It's really well edited. I think it's the scene of the movie, and it's the one that I like. totally settled this point that Vincent Price is just the man and a third of the reason everyone's got to see this. So I don't know if you have crosstalk on that scene or you have a, another one that stood out to you. Oh, that was a really good scene. I mean, in reality, every scene that he's in, except for the ending scene where he's walking through the crowd. Oh, I is, love that. I love that scene. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is, is pretty great. I think the one that I liked the most because it, uh, it was visually interesting, not to say that that scene wasn't, but uh, it caught my eye and he goes in and out of his great Vincent Price ways is when he's giving the monologue to Francesca about his Satanism through each of the colored rooms. Yeah, yeah. And I'm a big fan of food acting. <laughs> With the grapes? Yeah, well, you know, in each room there's like some fruit and so he's just eating little things and I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. Like, I love, you know, that's the best part of Ocean's Eleven is just watching Brad Pitt eat, right? And so you I love how Vincent he just... Price. <laughs> Vincent Price is twirling around this this food and this philosophy and going from room to room and it's just you can't take your eyes away from that scene he just he does it in such a delicious way same as when he you know he tries to outsmart the the lover and the the father and um and and the way he talks you know in other scenes just the way he talks about the other people in his castle yeah. you know these <laughs> yeah. people that he's 
He's saving for some reason, but he he hates all of the, He he's a character that feels no love uh, or or empathy for anything. He thinks that he does because he has the pretty words for it. Yeah, but he he's a sociopath, and uh, yeah, and I think and he I, does have a pretty good entrance as well in the movie. Yeah, I, I was gonna say his his opening scene and. Um... Just how quickly when they snap back at him, like you'll feed a scraps from the table like your dog, and he's just like exactly. <laughs> yes, it tunes you in exact immediately to, to who this guy is, and it's a really good exchange. I mean, you said it. I think we could we could name every single scene in this movie he's in because he is so good. Any movie, no matter how bad it is, is better for having Vincent Price in it. And um, yeah, because because he cares, and like. Like you said, you don't you don't find this to be one of his better performances or one of his more sympathetic characters. But that's what I appreciate about him is, is all the great villains. You don't have to sympathize with them, but you do see that they believe they're doing the right thing. And I think with uh, Vincent Price's Prince Prospero, you, you can constantly see like his motivation, why he thinks he's doing the right thing. Because if it's not tied to, you know, his mission to show the realities of the world... He's wrapped up in his own ego. Like you said, he, he really gets a kick out of because he provides shelter for, the, for these people and because he lavishes them with riches and wealth, he can treat them however he wants. And those are the scenes I actually think I find the most disturbing in this horror movie about death. Those scenes of making the, the noble people, you know, crawl on the ground like worms and all that stuff is actually really unsettling to me because it asks this question of like, at what point is your survival worth your dignity or your humanity, which I think also ties into the, uh, the hop toad segment, which the first time I watched this felt like a super shoved in subplot and, and probably still is just to get the movie to 90 minutes, knowing the way Roger Corman worked. But I found that even that kind of blended together these ideas that it had about how far is too far. And at what point, like hop toad says is, is life outside the castle walls worse than life within them so just to comment on the hop toad scene and the dancer uh esmeralda that was such a weird scene i mean <laughs> yeah. it was just which, which one like the the climax of it or their intro there, i think there's four scenes in that entire subplot. i mean all of it okay so the first time she comes out i'm like oh so they're they're really into debauchery i mean they're going to have sex with this like five-year-old girl and then it turns out that she's a dwarf but she's played by literally a little girl and yeah. then voiced in by this like sultry woman's voice yeah and i mean it was just just odd i mean and i liked that it was but it was very strange and it really threw me off um i couldn't help but laugh a little bit at that i mean when she was on screen, I just never knew how I was supposed to feel. Because it's like, okay, so since she's an adult, we're supposed to feel okay about them talking about her sexually. But you really didn't get the idea well, that she was an adult until way later. It's true. Yeah, I, I actually like couldn't tell if she was a child actress or if she was a little person. And I had to look it up after. Um, but, but, you know, you're not supposed to be okay with them talking about her sexuality. Because, you know, that that comment is made by Alfredo, played by... Uh, Patrick McGee, who we recognize as the the poor unfortunate author in A Clockwork Orange, um, and he's he's a scumbag. Like he's he's kind of like of all the horrible things that happened to everybody in this movie. Like if anyone deserves to burn to death in an ape outfit, it's definitely Alfredo because of the way that he looks at women and the way he lusts after them, no matter their station in life, their innocence, whatever. So I, I think that that still builds towards establishing like the moral rot of this world inside the castle. No, I don't disagree. I'm not saying that it, it was misplaced. It was just odd. I mean, sure, it had sure. not, not, not the storyline itself, but the way in which Roger Corman did it with, instead of fighting an actual um, little person, getting, and I feel like I'm not being PC, I'm not entirely sure what I'm supposed to be, the term I'm supposed to be using, but, uh, but having a little girl voiced by a woman was just uh, cinematically odd and jarring it, at first it, it is a weird choice and and we were we were talking about this a little bit off mic but i felt i felt really disarmed prepping for for this show because you know we th we've had a lot of heavy hitters on this podcast like a lot of all-timer legacy movies and you know even the last episode we were talking about these 
really brooding, thoughtful horror masterpieces by Werner Herzog and F.W. Murnau with the Nosferatu movies. And it's like those guys had vision, like everything was in the frame for a reason. And they, you know, were meticulous about getting it together. They like made their crew suffer. And so, you know, you read the image and it's like, that's exactly what that director wanted there. I can read into this. But with Roger Corman, I'm not saying he's not a talented filmmaker because I think he actually is, but you can't do that anymore because Corman doesn't obsess over what's in his frame and he rarely does multiple takes. So all of a sudden, does this completely disarm the way that I can analyze and critique a movie? Because if I think, oh, you know, that doesn't look as cinematically striking or the mise-en-scene is off, that wasn't his game in the first place. So it's like, well, I can't critique him on it. And it's the same with the dubbing thing where it's like, it's weird and it's off-putting, but that's also what all of these movies are like. They're just thrown together. And if their line readings they got on set didn't work, they grab whoever was walking down the hall, pull them into the ADR booth, and they fix it right there because they got to have the movie released by two o'clock that afternoon. Can we talk about Roger Corman for a minute? Yeah, let's do it. Because you say this is not his best movie. That's a reason you don't cinemas this is because this is far from his best movie. And, and here's the thing. I don't actually have an answer for what his best movie is. I mean, the man has, has produced 450 movies, right? No, 415 movies. And he's directed like 52 of them or something like that, right? I think so, yeah. Uh, and, you know, for, so for those who are not familiar with who Roger Corman is, he is one of the most, I wouldn't say necessarily influential, but most important filmmakers in all of film history, right? Uh, so many artists and filmmakers and actors came from what they call the, the school of Roger Corman, where his, his deal was, you come and do a movie for me for really cheap, and I'm going to make it miserable, and I'm going to torture you, and if you never have to come back and make a movie with me, then you know you succeeded. But if you make a second movie with me, then there's something wrong with your career. <laughs> um, you know, and he, so, and what I think is interesting, what we were talking about off mic, is that your experience with him is you knew him as a director, and I've only known him as a producer. But I don't know what what I guess. Tell me a little bit about your experience of Roger Corman in your film viewing. Well, not tons of experience, because honestly, outside of knowing him more as a director, I knew him for what you said. Like, he's the guy who gave us Francis Ford Coppola and Jonathan Demme. I found out he's even kind of responsible for Martin Scorsese a little. I didn't know Boxcar Bertha was a sequel to a movie he'd produced. So that was really cool. Yeah, in in terms of movies, these Poe, Vincent Price ones were the majority of what I'd seen. And I finally got to catch up with them. Little Shop of Horrors, the original one, over the weekend prepping for the show. But I haven't, really, I haven't seen a ton of Roger Corman's movies, but he exists as, as like a legendary symbol in moviedom, right? Because he's the guy, he's, he's prolific. Like, like you said, how many people have 415 producing credits to their name? He knows the system. He knows how to keep his crew on task. And he has a, a reputation for being somewhat dictatorial, but what director doesn't on the set? Um, so there's there's kind of something admirable about him to be this guy who works on low budget, who is adamant about spending usually about three weeks on a movie. I, I think Mask of the Red Death bumped that up to five. But yeah, he gave us a ton of prolific people. And it's always just interesting to me to see this guy who has had such an influence but never made a movie that was necessarily deserving of like awards and clearly even only only one of his movies is even worth including in this book but to me yeah the the figure of what he stands for is so important to movies more than the movies themselves yeah he's a lot it's a lot he reminds me a lot of the ray harryhausen episode that we did where it's a it's hard to pin down what is this guy's magnum opus because he has his his whole career is what defines him right and i think to give context, you know, in back of what you were saying about how he did things. So <clears throat> he famously made uh, Little Shop of Horrors in like three or four days. He made that movie because they had made another movie called Bucket of Blood, which is fantastic. Everybody should see that movie. Uh, Cinemust? Maybe. Maybe Cinemust. It's, okay. It's, okay. You, you, everybody would be entertained by that movie because it's hilarious. Um, but they went under budget. They had extra money that they didn't use all of it they had a few days and they're like let's just write, make another movie so they wrote another movie instantly they used the exact same score as bucket of blood and they made little shop of horrors which has gone on to become a cult classic and first role for jack nicholson um 
Francis Ford Coppola made uh was Fran- yeah Francis Ford Coppola made Dementia Thirteen with him, which I think that movie is great. Um, I think that's a really good movie as well. So there's a lot of things, and you know, Death Race Two Thousand, right? Not a great movie, but it's a movie that everybody quotes, right? You hit somebody on the road, and that's a, that's points, right? Oh, ten points if you hit this person, ten points if you hit that person, right? That all comes from. That's what my Death driver's Race ed teacher told me. <laughs> yeah, it's part of the culture, and so it's hard to define what's the best Roger Corman movie. I think there are several movies you have to watch in order to appreciate who the guy is. I mean, it sounds to me like to you, it's bucket of blood. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I'm I'm gonna push push your buttons here a little. Of the ones I've seen, of which I've admitted maybe six so not an expert here i think mask of the red death might actually be the best it's not my favorite but it might be the best of the ones i've seen because it does still keep his b-movie veneer he's still working with relatively the same system he's working with a different crew and, and like i said he upped his production schedule by about two weeks but still fast still on the cheap but he, he's got some serious stuff in here, like we've been talking about, all this stuff about death and existence and survival. I, I think this a strong case could be made that this actually is, like, his best. And, and I would agree that I think that if we're going to do this as, like, his serious movie that deserves recognition, that there should also be one that's goofier and funner. So, having not seen Bucket of Blood, but it does, you know, something like Bucket of Blood feels like it should also be up there. Possibly, yeah. Um... Well, let me ask you, did you enjoy this one more than Pit and the Pendulum? Well, you're getting ahead of me. Um, oh. Pit, and the, Pit and the Pendulum is uh, my favorite. We're, we'll actually talk about that a little more at the end of the episode. But yeah, that that is my favorite for for a couple of reasons. Um, but I, I do have to admit that, you know, cinematically, I, I think Mask of the Red Death is more rewarding. And my, my whole second point is is this lavish production. I called it a treat for the senses. And that's just the way this movie looks, right? That even though this movie's made on the cheap, I think it looks as good as any of the big castle court dramas or adventures that were popular in the 30s. You know, this this looks as good, if not better, than any Errol Finn swashbuckler like Robin Hood, you know? And I think props for that probably go to this being a little bit outside of Roger Corman's comfort zone, that he came to England to film this movie because of tax breaks. And so he and I think he and Vincent Price are the only Americans allowed on the production. Like to get the tax break, everybody else had to be British. So he had to bring in an all new crew. And so um, he's got Nicholas Rogue, whose movie Don't Look Now, we talked about a couple of ep- episodes ago. Unfortunately, he didn't make cinema must. Um, but, you know, this this movie has Nicholas Rogue all over it. The splashes of red, um, kind of the, the dour look of the world outside of the castle, like that that kind of cinematography you don't find that richness really anywhere else in Corman's filmography, but also, you know, he's working with a whole different set of production designers and art directors and set designers. And even, even the costume supervisors, like these people I think are, are the MVPs of mask of the red death, just because with a, with a couple of people and sets that they're reusing from Beckett, I think he's really fleshed out this world. So that castle feels like an actual place. It doesn't just feel like a cheap, set it feels like you're actually back in medieval times and you can immerse yourself in this hedonistic world of the rich and wealthy i know that's a long ways away from where we we got going but that's making the point for why i think it makes sense that this is the one that's been included in the book and why i think it could a case could be made at being his best like it, it really is kind of the complete package i think that's fair um it's true it's it's the one where he's probably taken himself the most seriously and really tried to make a film, and it was one that he wanted to make for a long time. Roger Corman is not a man of passion; he's a man who wants money, right? And and knows how to get it, and knows how to get it. You know, I, I think early on in his career, he did want to be a little bit more artistic, but I think that this was the peak of his artistry uh, before he just became a straight up money man. Yeah, well, and I think I think he'd been burned earlier in his career that he made. Um... The Intruder with William Shatner. Have you seen that? I've not. Yeah, based on the book. So that that was like his trying to break out, like make a serial movie. It's about um, about segregation and, you know, a, a guy going down to the South. And it just bombed where all these cheap horror movies he was making were, were making money. So I think that that burned him for a long time. That, you know, when, when you're serious, you're punished and you're not successful. But when you give people blood and guts, that's when you're successful. 
And it's interesting because in any interview I've ever seen with him uh, or heard him talk, he doesn't seem to have a real appreciation for the stuff that he actually makes. No, no. Not at all. Where, where that differs with Vincent Price in such a weird intersection between the two that Vincent Price, for the most part, enjoyed everything that he was doing you know he he did have to supplement his artistic needs by other means uh uh during the time of mask of the red death he actually he actually started working for sears roebuck did you know about this oh his art collection yeah i did this is fantastic you should tell tell the story yeah so he so vincent price is a renaissance man incredibly intelligent and he has a passion for art and he had a passion for modern art and so he was discovering modern artists at the time before anybody else was getting into them. And Sears had this, which is, this sounds amazing. Like, <laughs> I want to know how much these were going for. But What is the Sears that you speak of? See, yeah. <laughs> Sears had this idea where they, they wanted to sell original paintings, Picasso and Rembrandt and all sorts of stuff at Sears, the place in the mall <laughs> where you can buy a pair of socks and a lawnmower at the same place. <laughs> so... What they did was they hired him to be their curator to go and get uh, art, put it in the stores, and then to advertise it um, through commercials and stuff. And he actually thoroughly enjoyed that because he was able he was able to get a lot of his artistic needs met. Because although he enjoyed making these movies and he reveled in them, he did have kind of a problem with the movies that he was making later, where they got more vulgar and more. Mm-hmm. Um, violent uh but he still realized that he wasn't he wasn't making like oscar worthy gold right like he realized that he was making cheap campy movies and so he needed an outlet and so i think that's just really interesting and i think i think because he felt fulfilled as a person is how you're able to get uh you never get a phoned in performance from him he's not like He's not like Bruce Willis, right? Like, he's actually there not for the paycheck, but because he loves the craft. Um, and he's able to love this kind of craft because he was able to fulfill his artistic needs elsewhere. And, he, and honestly, and I mean, again, I'm talking about Mask of the Red Death is probably like one of the best materials, things he got to work with. But I, I think he still gets a, a lot of artistic fulfillments because, you know, here's I think he's a guy who really had ambitions of doing Shakespeare. And here he is in in these cheap horror movies that are shot in three weeks. But even that speech in the beginning, in the, in the empty hall with the clock ticking where he's talking about what terror is. And he says that line of like, let us not dwell on terror. The knowledge of terror is vouchsafed only to the precious few. Like that's, that's such an overwritten, like wannabe Shakespeare line, but he sells it in that moment. Like his, his sincerity in all of this in, in any movie he does, like he, he is my hero. Like you said, because he doesn't have disdain for most of the material, at least in these movies that he's really, really famous for. And, and even, oh, the, the Blu-ray that I rented, it was a part of that um, Vincent Price collection that Sh- uh, Scream Factory put out. And I'm so sad that Blu-ray is not in print anymore. I would snatch it up. They include like the old intros and outros he would do for the movies when they were airing on TV. And it's, it's, like, the, it's like the typical thing, you know, where like he's sitting in a dark library with candles and he's reading a book and he's like, oh, hello. And he, he starts doing these speeches. They're so good. <laughs> like those those intros and outros get you pumped for the movies so much. Like he's just my hero. Like I said, he's any movie that has him in it is better for it. And it's because he just is a professional. Like he he knows the type of movies he's in. He he can camp it up when necessary, but he he won't just phone it in either. Like with Prospero, he's not just like, oh, he's a Satanist, whatever, he's evil. Like he imbues that guy with personality. Yeah, I will push back, though. I wouldn't Please. say that this is his best material he's gotten to work with. Remember, this is a guy who was in The Ten Commandments. He was in Laura. He was in okay, a look- lot of different movies. I wouldn't say that... I don't, wouldn't say that Vincent Price could look back at his career and say, ah, Mask of the Red Death by Roger Corman. That was the best thing that I've done. I might give you Laura. Laura's a great movie. Um, it's, it's not a Vincent Price vehicle. I sincerely believe Mask of the Red Death is a far superior movie to Ten Commandments. I can't stand the Ten Commandments. Oh, I've, I've always had a soft spot for the Ten Commandments. You know, you know and that's cool. It's just D- DeMille's whole thing has never spoken to me. Yeah. Or, well, or Charlton okay, Heston, so- for that matter. So... So that's interesting. If Vincent that's... Price had played Moses, maybe I'd like it a lot more. 
That would that would let be my people go. I can't do Vincent Price. <laughs> that would be interesting. Um, here's where, here's the new game we can play. Picture your favorite movie and sub out Vincent Price for the hero and see if it's a better movie. Oh, Iron Man. <laughs> Not saying that Iron Man is my favorite movie, but I would love to see Vincent Price as a superhero. <laughs> we did get to see him as a supervillain in the Batman show uh, with uh-huh. Adam West, yeah. and uh, yeah, he, you know he was on he was on television a lot. He did somewhat up to like I think I read uh, two thousand TV appearances. The man was a consummate professional. He was a hard. He was, he was a hard worker, constantly working. This begs the question to to go to your first point. This is not the best of Vincent Price. So I wondered if you could share with us what is the best of Vincent Price and how does the Mask of the Red Death stack up? Does it make top five, top ten? Is it anywhere close? Ah, uh, gee. Okay. Well, first of all, best Vincent Price monologue has to go to uh, Devil's the, Food. The thriller video. Walk, welcome to my nightmare. No. Welcome, <laughs> well, so here's the thing. Everybody, a lot of people know Vincent Price from the Michael Jackson thriller video. That was not an original idea. Years earlier, Alice Cooper did the exact same thing with his phenomenal first solo album, Welcome to My Nightmare. And it was actually a TV movie. I don't know if you knew this. I did not. Welcome to My Nightmare is technically a soundtrack to a TV movie about Alice Cooper stuck in a nightmare and being followed around by a curator which is played by vincent price which if you ever want to see real campy dorkiness that's also awesome go on youtube look it up you can watch a scene where alice cooper is in a leotard and vincent price is in like just giant amounts of clothes and they're both on a seesaw it's incredible cool um (laughs) but uh so that's the best that's his best monologue um so seriously, go out and find that. It's, it's excellent, and the whole album's great. But his best movie, uh, I, you know, I've talked to you a little bit about this. I am a really big fan of House on Haunted Hill. Yeah, it's a good um, one. It's a real that's, one. That's one where it's kind of before he really fell deep into the horror genre. And it's one where he gets to be both charming and menacing and villainous and sympathetic and a hero all at the same time he gets to play all of those kinds of roles within this movie because you just never know who he is i used to watch that movie constantly as a child and i was terrified of that movie the witch scene in that movie freaked me out all the time i loved that movie i think that he is incredibly enjoyable in that movie i would also put theater of blood up there where he gets to do all the shakespearean soliloquies in such a campy amazing fashion but to also show off that wonderful voice of his while being menacing and evil i love house of wax i think house of wax is 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 fantastic and he's so interesting and demented in, in in that movie um gee what else um so to speak to your point is it that the mask of the red death is devoid of a lot of those things or is it just you feel those movies do it better because I, I would say, you know, interesting and menacing also perfectly describes his role as Prince Prospero. I found Prince Prospero an interesting char- character, but I didn't find him the most compelling character compared to other Vincent Price movies. Okay. In The Mask of the Red Death, he is by far the most compelling and interesting character in the movie. Yes. But compared to his other work, I find other characters he did to be more fulfilling to me in this one he just got to play intelligent and wicked which he can do asleep (laughs) um (laughs) and he does it well i mean he really elevates this movie and brings it to a place that very few other actors would have been able to do it right um the movie rests a lot on him and i think he allows himself to be pretty he does a great job but is it, is it the Vincent Price that should be represented on this list? I, I don't think so. Um, I think we could do better. Which one it is, I, you know, I'm not entirely sure which one that is yet. Maybe that's a ding in my argument. But I don't know that I would say that this is best. I would say that, yes, Roger Corman, this is probably his best. I think I can see that point. That's, this is probably his, 
his most serious work. But for Vincent Price, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I'm I'm still on board because um, I I think like I said the material that he's working with also just really boosts everything. That th- things in Mask of the Red Death seem to be working around a theme rather than just. Uh, a well-observed character because that's kind of the thing is sometimes Vincent Price movies he's got a great character in a movie that's kind of about not a lot other than like cheap thrills and kind of like a, a niche hook or something and I'm not knocking that I love I love all these movies but you know here it's pretty overt that you know the line the thesis of the movie is every man makes his own god his own heaven and his own hell and here's Vincent Price every step of the way kind of proving the point and and that you know his um his cruelty, God, that scene with the the nobleman that's begging to come in, and how he just toys with him is so freaking good. Like t- to me, that's just the thing is like he's not only cued into a great character, he's cued into like, well, this guy thinks of himself as God, but he doesn't believe a caring God exists. So to him, the only God that can exist is one who's cruel, who only looks out for himself, who uses the quote unquote harsh realities of the world as an excuse to treat people horribly. And like I said, at every turn, like that's a that's such a horrible idea. But at the same time, we've used the word delicious a lot. He's a delicious villain. He's so malevolent <laughs> and charming. Like I, I really just think he he not only sells his character, but he sells the theme of the movie. And that's why this is a a top one for me. I think for me, this is probably second best uh, Vincent Price performance ever. So what's the first? I am very partial to Witchfinder General, which which is really similar, like super bleak downer movie, um, kind kind of a lot of the same ideas, like a guy who warps facts and truths to suit his own appetites and desires. Um, but that that movie kind of almost completely leaves behind like the B movie veneer. Like that's just a movie that's like, holy crap, this is bleak and so good. Have you seen it? I just bought it. I have not watched it yet. That is a movie, though, that he he was not happy about. Yeah, rough times. Rough times on that set. And uh, for those looking for that movie, you won't find that movie in America at this point with that title. It's called The Conqueror Worm in America, which... So since I have yet to see that movie, which makes me a terrible Vincent Price fan, uh, I really am curious because those two titles are very different. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah uh, let's let me know what you think it's it's been a long time but to me that that movie just floored me the first time i saw it i thought it was so good so a question i'm i'm kind of trying I, i'm not saying you're not a fan of this movie i'm kind of just trying to get some some kind words out of it out of you on it um all this stuff i've been talking about there's there's some surprisingly complex ideas does any of that stick out to you do you gravitate towards any of it or does it seem like it's trying too hard i think it's a very it's a very bleak outlook on life, and it's it's kind of interesting that a movie that early on in the movie system would make that they were allowed to make a movie that's that bleak. The sixties, um, man, good yeah, times. I mean, <laughs> weird, weird, weird times, right? Like yeah. you just never know what you can get back then, right? <laughs> so with it, no, I do find some of those themes interesting. I I really liked the end the conversation with all of the different colored deaths. Yeah. I was intrigued by that. I wanted more of them. And I know that he steered away from that idea because he was scared of being compared to the seventh seal. As well he should have been. <laughs> it's it's eerily similar. Yeah, well, and he kind of used it as an excuse of why he didn't release it early too, because really he just couldn't find a script he was satisfied with. Sure. But I mean, I don't blame him. I mean that you know <laughs> Bergman and Corman who's going to win out well not <laughs> not Corman <laughs> one of the greatest um, movies of all time or Mask of the Red Death <laughs> hmm. I think it's interesting to make Prospero a Satanist uh, and I think it was a bold move and I liked that they came through with this intelligent argument rather than a spiritual uh, yeah. argument yeah which I think really makes it worse because that's that's the um, those are the arguments that are the most troublesome in our society, right? The arguments where you know that the the Cliff Notes version of it is just evil, but when you hear it explained, it gets confusing, right? When you talk to uh, or you listen to interviews from uh, white nationalists uh, or neo Nazis, they're not they're not just spewing out explicits the whole time and just calling people 
uh, racial slurs, they have very concrete arguments and counter arguments for their beliefs. And that's what makes it scary, right? Because they're not just going off of pure emotions, which you can make the argument that they are. But what makes them scary is that they have an argument and intelligent or I should say intellectual reasons of how they got to that point. And so I appreciated that Corman and Vincent Price and, and, and the team made the decision to make this an intellectual argument rather than a spiritual argument. Yeah. So I think that that was really powerful. I think that that worked really well uh, for the character and the movie. Yeah, totally. It's like I said, it's a subplot. I'm I'm kind of on the fence about, but yeah, those those scenes, the the, the falconer speech about sewing their eyes shut to train them is all really good. There's a part of me that wishes the movie had a stronger co lead in Francesca, and you know that's not to knock on um, Jane Asher because in this type of movie she's kind of brought in to fill one purpose which is to be like the the beautiful innocent virginal girl and i think she does a decent job but you know if the, if the movie is a, a clash of ideologies she does kind of wilt under prospero's power a little too easily and, and you're kind of only clued into what a, a foe she is because of things prospero says that you know she has a a pure faith and he talks about he almost causes her to doubt because she would sacrifice herself for love so those are are nice individual gestures but you, you kind of wish you had like a more powerful figure to oppose him if if you had somebody like hazel court who i think crushes it as juliana in that role instead of kind of the thankless role that juliana is i think you'd have a stronger movie but even as it stands you know that that clash between like faith and intellectualism and francesca always kind of having to bow out because she just didn't know anything you know she didn't know the inquisition had even happened is kind of the implication of that scene that you know everything she knows about the world is kind of stuff she's heard third hand yeah, I mean, if we're being honest, when it comes to performances, there's not a lot of great performances besides Vincent Price. Uh, I I think Hazel Court does pretty well, and I like Skip Martin, but Patrick McGee is pretty good. Like Patrick McGee is is only there to be despicable, but he's super good at it. Uh, sure, yeah, he's okay. I mean, really, it didn't feel like anybody else was really giving it their all. Maybe Hazel Court. Uh, I mean, oh, what is the um. The father and the lover, those guys didn't even know where they were half the time. I mean, (laughs) this and this is why, like, this is why this movie completely rests. Nothing that this movie has would stand up on its own if it didn't have Vincent Price. I agree with that. He is he is the the secret sauce holding it all together. He really is, and that's that's the only thing that elevates this movie. Other than that, if you replaced it with anybody, this movie would be a slog. I don't know about slog. I, I think in most places it's fairly tightly paced. I, I think the only thing that I wholesale would cut is uh, Juliana's dream sequence of, of all the sacrifices. That seems to be there just because all of these Poe Price movies have a weird dream sequence that's on a tinted lens. But I, I think everything else is interesting, but you're right. If Vincent Price isn't there to sell the monologues, it's probably a Cinetrust for me. But I do... I don't want to put all the praise on him. I'll give most of it, but I I still think like the, like I said, what Nicholas Rogue does with the cinematography, the set design, the production designs, the costume supervisors, even there's, there's some cool things happening. Like Juliana's or not Juliana's, um, Francesca's, I wouldn't say conversion, but you know, as she comes along to, you know, kind of listening more to Prospero and seeing his way of thinking, like her costumes become a lot more elaborate and they become a lot more decorated and vain. And I think it's a, a really cool move. So yeah, Vincent Price is the linchpin that holds it all together, but I do think that all the other elements of the production really did come together, and that's what is also helping this movie stand up and, and makes it a cinema must for me. But I do have to concede that without Vincent Price, like it is very likely Cinetrust. No doubt Cinetrust. I would, I would argue that if it, if it starred some other no-name actor from the 60s, like almost all of these other actors were in a lot of ways, right? I think that this movie would be a Cinnabon because I don't think that they would have been able to sell it. Sure, they could have some cool visuals, but I mean, how often do we get movies today that have really cool visuals and really great thought behind them, but the movies themselves suck? 
But I think it's a good story too, though, because even if we don't have Vincent Price, like even the stuff with the Red Death, I mean, that that last line when they all get together and they're talking about how tired they are and one of them says, the weariness of those to whom we bring rest burdens you. That's a freaking great line. Yeah, but I mean, like, line. exploitation films are great at that, right? Like, they're, they, they, exploitation films don't have to be good in any aspects, but they could have one or two scenes that are phenomenal, right? That are just better than anything that you would have gotten into the Oscars. But I, I wouldn't say that those hold it up. I think, the, I think the, the weakness in this movie is that Vincent Price, it seems like, really directed himself in this movie. I'm not sure how good a director, and maybe this is why he quit directing so long ago, that Roger Corman is with his actors, because he really wasn't able to pull anything out of these people that they weren't already doing. Sure. And I mean, you'll also notice that in my three points, Corman's not mentioned anywhere. Like, my three points are <laughs> Vincent Price, the actor, the cinematographer, production designer, costume designer, and the writers. Like, the, those, are, those are all the people that come together, and, and Corman gets to sit in the chair and bring it together and get the credit. But yeah, it, it's really like that, the entire team and not the director that's making this a must for me. <laughs> all, right, all right. Yeah. No, I, I, total, I totally see where you're coming from. And I, I was on the fence about this too. Like for a long time, I was like, oh, it's just Diet Bergman. Like, can, can I give this a reason for a must other than like, well, if you don't like that the seven seals in black and white, here's this gorgeous technicolor <laughs> movie. Uh, but but I, I'm on board to the unique things that, Mask the Red Death has to say, even though they overlap, I, I do still, I stand by that gorgeous cinematography. I think so much of like the, the outside world, the grimness that's conveyed there through those dead trees and the, the stark standout of the red robe is super good. And then the court is just a, a lavish place. It's, it's really easy to get sucked into this hedonistic world where people are really self-obsessed and awful, but I think you're still like kind of on their side. There's, there's this disturbing thing about like I said, what the movie's saying about class, and we can give Poe credit for this because he wrote a great story about, you know, the rich sequestering themselves while the rest of the world burns and, you know, what they'll, what they'll do to survive. And that's a, a thing this movie embellishes is how we're all really the same, that everybody is on the lookout, or how everybody is just trying to escape from their own demise and trying to put off that reality that death comes for all. And, and some people are able to do it easier than others because they have more stuff and more money. Like I said, surprised me how complex some of the ideas surrounding this movie are because I just thought it was like an 80 minute uh, weird horror movie that they just uh, slash Technicolor on. <laughs> Eat the rich. <laughs> so um, we're we're coming up on time, David, but we do we do have one new feature for the show since we're switching to single movie format. I hate to see the double feature go. I always thought it was so much fun to pair up movies together, sometimes movies that you wouldn't think would pair together. And it always brought out like some interesting discussions, but you know, two hour shows were, were kind of wearing on all of us, but I kind of want to keep that spirit around. So to close, uh, we're going to have this new segment where we are going to pair the featured movie on today's episode with another movie that we would create a double feature out of. And this can be any movie for any reason, just some kind of link. So what movie would you pair the mask of the red death with for a double feature, David? And I can I can only assume that this would be a, a movie in the Price or the Corman vein that you absolutely would do cinema must. Would I be off base in that estimation? Yeah, I probably would make this movie a cinema must. So I I was I was trying to go back and forth. What would be a good one? I think I know which one you're going to go with. So I decided to go in a different direction and go outside of the Poe Corman world. And I've already mentioned this movie, but I'm going to go with Theater of Blood. And my connection here, besides Vincent Price, is two great writers, a Poe and a Shakespeare. Mm. And I think with both of these movies, you will get not only some great performances of Vincent Price, but uh, you'll get some... I mean, I, I should, it, Theater of Blood is not an adaptation of a Shakespearean play by any means, but you'll get some great speeches, monologues, and some really great Shakespearean moments, because the movie is quite Shakespearean itself. Uh, but it's also a little bit more lighthearted. It is, it is very comedic and horrifying at the same time. And you get to see where he's gone in his career. <clears throat> I think it would make for an entertaining and balanced meal between the two movies. Um, so that you're not just wallowing in the dreariness of a world where death is coming for all of us in some 
rainbow fashion. Yeah. Uh, the the topic of two episodes in a row now, that was also pretty much all we talked about with the Nosferatu segment. So we've really kept this whole like death and plague thing going. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that sounds, that sounds like fun. I actually really want to see Theater of Blood. I know it's been, I've seen Abominable Dr. Fives and I've been told they're essentially the same movie. It's just Theater of Blood is the, the theater Shakespeare thing. Um, but I'm really excited to check it out. My recommendation for a double feature with the mask of the red death is, has also already been mentioned uh i did stick within the the poe price adaptations uh my recommendation is the pit and the pendulum which i think i already said i i think i could say objectively mask of the red death is the best but pit and the pendulum is my favorite and it's actually for a reason you said david um when we were talking early on about Price's performance and being kind of despicable but not sympathetic to you, Pit and the Pendulum is a much more sympathetic character. He's, you know, he's a character who's not overtly the bad guy. There's suspicion cast on him with um, that he may have murdered his wife and her brother has come to visit this castle because he's heard of her death. But beyond like him just being a more sympathetic character and you kind of get to see both the sides of Vincent Price, um, we also, this is the second of the Poe movies that were made. I think Mask of the Red Death is second to last, so there's kind of a bookend thing. And Pit and the Pendulum is made with his usual crew in the States, and it does have a little more of that. Um, it, it, I'm not, it doesn't look cheap, but there's a little more of low budgetness. There's, there's four principal actors, there's a couple of sets, but it still all works in this isolated castle setting. I think it's a ton of fun. I think it has some really good scares. I think it has a fantastic final shot. And yeah, Vincent Price gets to ham it up a little more as the, the the pendulum is swinging with the axe. It's a really, really good time. So I would probably recommend, yeah, do, um, I'd probably recommend do Mask of the Red Death first, get the, the deep, depressing stuff out of the way, and then go back to Pit and the Pendulum, which is really fun, great character, really good movie. I would probably also cinema that if we ever featured it on the show. I, I've always been a fan of Pit and the Pendulum, and I think that was when I realized the, uh, the tragic nature of Vincent Price characters of him being some sort of sympathetic villain. And uh, it's always been, uh, yeah, I think he's really enjoyable in those ways. I will say the only other time, the, the one time though that I completely unabashedly enjoy him being 100% evil through and through is say it. Radigan. Yeah. Radigan. Oh, Radigan. <laughs> He's so good in that role. And his song is fantastic. He kills it in that movie. And I will say that that movie also has a jump scare that I still think still holds up today. It's terrifying. The, be the beginning with the bat? Yes! Yeah, that f***ed me up as a kid. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, super good. Um... Yeah, I, I thought about doing Seventh Seal as a double feature. It's too much depression in one double feature. So I, I think both of our recommendations would make for a great movie night. This will be a fun game to keep doing as we go along, uh, keep the double feature thing alive. And, and the fun thing is, is we'll, we'll throw this out to, to listeners this week of the episode drops. So make sure you're following us on a social media platform, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, because we really want to hear what you guys would pair up with Mask of the Red Death for a good double feature. So David, I think we should wrap it up, man. Are there any final words you'd like to say about the Mask of the Red Death? I mean, go and watch it. If you don't want to watch this movie, if we haven't convinced you, if I was too much of a wet blanket, or if uh, Mike's points didn't convince you, I mean, watch it anyways. It's a fun movie. It's, well, I shouldn't say it's fun, but it's an interesting movie. <laughs> in and, its way. And if you've never seen a Vincent Price movie, I don't care what it is. Just find one and watch it. And just revel in the man's wonderful, beautiful voice. <laughs> he, he is soothing. Yeah, I'll I'll second you on that. Um, you really can't go wrong. Pick anything that he's featured on the cover, pop it in. You're gonna have a great time. He's he was a national treasure. He was. He really was. And if you like radio shows, he's got a lot of them. He was the original saint, and he had a show called The Price of Fear, where he told horror stories. And uh, so, if you just are in the car and you want to be soothed over, he also has a lot of videos where he just reads Edgar Allan Poe stories. So. Yes, there's a this lot is out the there. This is the week, people. Immerse yourselves in the price. Yes, because the price is right. <clears throat> Was that sufficiently bad? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, well, thank you, David, to to point out again the the only movie of his included in a thousand and one movies you must see before you die, but. This was so much fun that I think in the future we'll have to do a Not 1001 show to see if we can get another movie of his on our Central Cinema list. Sounds good. 
Can't wait to see what we come up with. So, yeah, you and I are done. We have had our say. It is now on you guys, the listeners, to decide if The Mask of the Red Death is going to make our list of essential cinema. So, again, make sure you are following us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We will be throwing those polls out there to see what you guys think, as well as to get your double feature recommendations for it. So we can't wait to see what you guys think. David, man, thank you so much for coming back, talking horror movies. It's always a fun time with you. Always a great time to be here. Always a great time to talk about horror. Happy Halloween, y'all. Yeah, uh, I, David will wish you a happy Halloween. I'm going to hold off because I will get to say that to you on next week's show, which uh, the content of which has been decided by you guys. We threw out a poll to ask what movie we should cover for our week of Halloween episode. There were a lot of werewolf-heavy suggestions, and the majority lot fell on American Werewolf in London. So that is the movie we will be putting up for must-see status next week. And for that, we are very excited. We're going to be joined by the Cinema Recalls podcast, the Vern, this will be his first time on the show. He's a great guy. I'm really excited for the episode to talk about the movie. So we hope we will see you again. Thank you all so much for listening. And remember, never take your masks off. <laughs> <laughs>